I'm grateful that his grace does abound to us. You know, this is a special Sunday um, for me personally. This is uh, the marks the anniversary of me being your pastor um, for a year, and your grace has abounded to me. Um, um, thank you. I wasn't fishing for that, but I'm grateful. Um, and in such a weird, bizarre year, um, you have been so gracious to me um, as your pastor um, to put up with me, and so I'm, I'm happy um, to still be here. Um, and so this morning we're going to be talking, uh, continue our series in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, and we are going to be talking about some body image problems. And now when you saw that title or looked at it, you may have said to yourself, uh, Pastor, I went through puberty a while ago, um, not a teenage girl, I don't know, what are you talking about? What are we doing here this morning? Um, well, specifically what we're going to look at this morning in these two really topics that Paul covers in, in lawsuits and sex or sexual immorality is really that the church in Corinth has some body image problems. And what I mean by that is the way that they view the corporate body or the church body and the way that they view their own physical bodies is wrong. They have a false image of how those things um, should look. And we too often, um, we can have a body image problem and that we often have a deficient theology or a deficient doctrine or deficient understanding of really what does the church body mean and what does our own physical bodies mean? Do our physical bodies matter? Are, are they important? Is there even, does the Bible say anything about our physical bodies? Is it just about our souls? And especially when it comes to our physical bodies, we really don't fully understand what it means to be embodied beings. And by that, I just mean that we are, are souls, we are spiritual beings who have physical bodies, and that is actually significant, and that means something. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning is, I mean, how should we view our bodies? How should we view our church body, and how should we view our own physical bodies? And we'll see how the church in Corinth gets this wrong. And so I'm going to invite Olga to come up um, and read our passage for us. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, kind of all, the whole chapter from verse 1 through 20. So thank you, Olga, for reading for us. Good morning, church family. I love, the, I love the sound of that, don't you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us, united in purpose. If you will stand as we read God's Word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them down before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud 
even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here in your presence, united in one purpose, and that is to give you glory. We ask that this day be a day for us to reflect on your goodness, be thankful for your precious word, because it is your voice we hear. Heavenly Father, we just ask that David will be able to present to us insights and reflections that belong to you. Heavenly Father, we just ask for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. We ask all of these things in your most precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Olga. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is that, no, you're okay. The ch our church body exists as an example. So point number one is our church body exists as an example. And what I mean by this is this is what part of the church is for. That, and specifically in the context here that Paul is talking about, is the way that we treat each other as family as brothers and sisters of Christ, as members of the same corporate church body, is an example to the world of how they should be treating each other. And not just for how they should be treating each other, but as a lot of what Paul talks about, he says, hey, don't you know what the future will look like? Hey, don't you know what the heaven and the new earth will be like? The way you're acting is supposed to point the world towards that. But the problem in Corinth is that the Corinthians aren't doing this at all. They're falling way short of this. 
And part of what can feed this is we have false views of the church body. We have false views of what that looks like. If we think that the way we treat each other inside of these walls or inside of our church body doesn't actually matter, if we think and tell ourselves, well, it's not really that big of a deal. I think, you know, the important things are, are other stuff. The important thing is that preaching the gospel. The important thing is having right doctrine. The important thing is having expository preaching, going through verse by verse. And yes, those are important things. Yes, those are needed things. But it's also important that we treat each other in a way that honors Jesus. And so what they're doing now is they think this doesn't matter at all. And they're revealing that by how they what's going on, the way they're treating each other. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go before the law to the unrighteous instead of the saints? What does this mean? It means they're suing each other. They're suing each other in court. Okay, now you've heard of church splits, heard of church fights, or you've been a part of those or seen those from a distance. This is like another level where the fight is escalating to now they're going before the judges. Now they're going before the Supreme Court. They're, you know, they're taking this high and high up a notch. That lets you know how serious a fight really is. And this is serious sin. Paul is not happy about this. Paul says this is a problem. And it's a problem for a number of reasons. Part of it is because they're denying to the world who the body of Christ is. In verse 2, do you not know the saints are supposed to judge the world? Verse 3 again, don't you know you're to judge angels? Say, like, what in the world are y'all doing? How are you supposed to demonstrate to an unrighteous, unsaved, ungodly world what the future will be like if this is what you're doing now? And in a microcosm, how, if you can't even handle treating each other well without suing each other, then what, what, what are you doing? What, what are you doing here? And some of this, you know, we can, you can go down rabbit trails and trying to avoid that um, in speaking of, well, what does this mean in judging angels and judging the world? Well, this seems to be talking about when Christ returns at the end, when especially the 12 apostles and all of us as believers will get to rule and reign with Jesus. And part of that will be we will participate in judging the earth. That's what the future is. And so our job now as believers is to point people towards the future when Jesus is coming, isn't it? To point people towards this is what it will be like when Jesus comes back. Don't you want to prepare for that? Don't you want to be ready? And wow, how can we be doing that if we're ending up in court? And he's saying, as a caveat too, Paul mentions that in the end of verse 3, are you not incompetent to try trivial cases? So he's mentioning these disputes and lawsuits, particularly in their context, are things that are just trivial and benign. This isn't serious stuff. Some people or some churches will go way too far to the extreme because that's what we're always tempted to do, right? Is pendulum swing from one extreme to another. And so some will take this and say, see, we should never go before the court ever for anything, that there's nothing. But that's not what Paul is saying here. And so churches will use this and they'll cover up abuse or they'll cover up crimes that are happening because they think, no, well, Paul says that we have to handle this in-house. So, so we'll do that. We won't involve the police or these other things. Well, that's a misunderstanding. What Paul's talking about is Paul's talking about the kind of course, the kind of court, the kind of court cases. Words are hard sometimes. The kind of cases that end up on those daytime court television shows, okay? Like Judge Judy. It's probably you know the most famous one, right? Now I, I enjoy watching that every now and then. We don't have cable, so I don't watch that very often. We're traveling in a hotel, or I'm visiting someone, and I'm 
flipping through channels, and that pops on. If there's not on a commercial, I'm probably going to stay there for a few minutes because I want to I see what's happening, right? Because it's just, it's entertaining. It's ridiculous. It's kind of real. It's also television. There's one that I saw from this week because um, I looked it up to see, well, what's going on in there? Well, someone was suing a pet store owner because they had bought a turtle and it died, and so they were suing, it for, suing them for emotional damages, right? Okay, that is the kind of stuff that's happening in Corinth. That's the kind of stuff that they are fighting over, that they are taking before these other courts in the land. And what Paul is saying is that is shameful. That is beyond shameful that y'all are doing that. What is, it, what is that telling to the world about who you are? And part of it, too, for, for us, like we find that kind of stuff is entertaining, right? That's why Judge Judy makes however many millions of dollars a year she does for those and, and all of the others. But in Corinth, they were also entertained by court cases, Okay, this was like a burdening or a, a emerging entertainment industry for them was to go and just watch the court and see people fight and see what the judge does and, and be enjoyed by that, right? Which isn't that different from us today. They just they had to physically go there instead of just turning on their television. And Paul is saying this is a horrible example. You, you guys are supposed to be, the way you treat each other in the church, an example to the world, and you are falling vastly short. Another reason this is a serious sin is because of the way that lawsuits specifically worked in the city of Corinth at this time. Because lawsuits then didn't work the same way that they do for us today, right? So, so we, we have our, our own justice system in our country, right? It's not perfect, much like nothing will be until Jesus returns. It's got problems, but you know what? I'll take it over anything else, right? Take it over other places. I'm grateful for it. The, current, the Corinthians have a way, way, way worse justice system. Theirs is deeply flawed, deep into its design. Because the Corinthians would use the court system as how they would actually advance. So we've talked about this. They are all about climbing the ladder, the Corinthian dream. Bigger, better, stronger, more fame, more money. That's what they want. Well, in Corinth, you would use the court system to do that. That's how you would gain power, gain money, gain influence. And one of the uniquenesses about their court system in their day is you could only sue down, you couldn't sue up. You could only sue people poorer than you. You could only sue people lower on the social ladder than you. You could only sue people way worse off than you. You couldn't actually sue anybody above you. You couldn't sue your boss for mistreating you if you were the worker, but you could sue the worker for not doing a good job. Okay, so that obviously is very heavily biased against the rich and the powerful and those who have it. But here's another thing. So just in case, right, because you're already you're suing people worse off than you, just in case that wouldn't work because the facts are all stacked against you and you're just being a jerk and it's clear that, you know, justice is not on your side, well, then you can just pay the judge because bribes were openly available at this time and everybody knew that's what was happening. Everyone turned a blind eye. No one really cared at all. So you could just sue somebody below you and then pay the judge off to get whatever you wanted. That's what's happening in Corinth. That. It's not just they're fighting each other or something silly and it ends up there. It is that those who have power and influence and money are abusing and mistreating those below them as well. Because they think that how they treat each other doesn't matter at all. They're bullying each other. And what an abomination this is. And it's a disgrace to them and the community. In verse 5, Paul says, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed that this is happening in your midst. 
And then he goes on to say, man, I mean, even if there's something, so let's just say this isn't just you bullying and being a jerk. Let's say there's a legitimate beef and you have a problem. And so that's how it's ended up here. The end of five, can it, is there nobody among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers and sisters? Is there nobody wise enough that can handle this? Don't you guys have pastors? Don't you have elders? You guys are always going on and on about how spiritually mature you are, so you don't have anybody that can decide something? Talked last week about church discipline. Well, this is like, talked about a serious case. This is much lower cases. Well, we've got people fighting amongst each other. Well, the church should be able to handle that. The fact that you can't handle it is shameful for you. And six, but brother goes to law against brother, and to that before unbelievers. And it's significant if you go back to verse 1, actually, when he says, because he doesn't say unbelievers in the beginning. He says, do you dare go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? uses the word unrighteous, and then you look at verse 9, unrighteous pops again. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then goes on to list a number of people who are unrighteous. He's not just saying unbelievers. He's saying, you are going before people who stand condemned before the law and the court of God. And that's who you're going for for justice. Shouldn't the church, the place that's supposed to be an example of justice and how we treat each other, shouldn't that be the place that should handle this? But now he says it to their shame. Now we, um, this probably, I, I don't think, I haven't noticed this is a problem in Tanglewood. I feel like I would have heard about this if people were suing each other, hopefully. Um, I don't hear about everything, but someone would fill me in on that. But we, we got to be careful that we don't just pat ourselves on the back and say, good, okay, you know, some Corinthians has been tough, but I got this part down. Like, I, I'm good. Well, but we mistreat each other in other ways, don't we? We, we talk bad about each other. Or we don't, maybe we don't talk bad about each other. We share prayer requests about each other. That's not really a prayer requests, but maybe it's just gossip. We can backbite. We can do all sorts of other things. And when we don't treat each other in a way that honors Jesus, in a way that honors the other person in our church body, what we do is we're portraying a terrible example to the world. Well, what Paul tells us to do instead, so he says, to have lawsuits already is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why, in verse 7, why not rather be defrauded? Those are hard questions. Paul is saying it's better, it's better to suffer injustice. It's better for someone to talk terrible about you. It's better for somebody to be cruel to you and to just endure it than to go and do what they're doing. You know who that reminds me of? Someone who suffered wrong and who was defrauded and didn't seek out their own justice? It reminds me of Jesus on the cross. As you, Jesus at his trial, through a mock trial in this kangaroo court with witnesses making up lies and people saying all sorts of things. You know what Jesus did? He was silent. The man who knew everything, everyone's thoughts, who could have talked circles around everyone to get out of it, was silent and endured and suffered wrong. Who was defrauded, even as they mocked him and blindfolded him and smacked him around, said, prophesy, prophesy. He could have prophesied everything they had done that morning, not just who had hit him, and yet he stayed there silent. That's our example. That's who we're supposed to be like. And so uh, Paul tells us, as the church, we are meant to be, the church body exists as an example. And part of how we can do that is be a great example for the world as being like Jesus, is even when we're wronged, Instead of going and backbiting and doing the things they do and bullying to get what we think is justice so the stuff can be made right, to just endure 
and to turn to Jesus. So that's, that's our first point. I'm going to go ahead and turn to our, our second point now, and looking at our, our physical bodies. This is where I want to spend more of our time. And your second point is that our physical bodies exist to glorify Jesus. Our physical bodies exist to glorify Jesus. I'm going to jump to verse 12, and we're going to come back to 9 through 11 um, kind of at the end. And part of the main thing we're going to discuss here, and what I want us to see, is that our physical bodies actually do matter to God. Our physical bodies, what you are sitting in your chair in right now, that actually has significance and matters to Jesus. And the purpose of it is like the purpose of anything. The reason we exist is to glorify Jesus. But there's some wrong ways that we view our physical bodies. There are two significant ones. And the first wrong way that we view our bodies, and this may not be us, but this is definitely the world, is we view our bodies or our, the physical desires of our bodies as always good. And not just that our physical desires are good, but that they must be fulfilled. And this is what Paul is talking about, kind of in 12 through 20. And the world in Paul's day sounds very similar to ours. In verse 13, you may notice it's got that in quotes. And what he's doing is he's quoting either something that they said in their letter to him, or that is a popular saying, or summarizes really the way that people view um, the way that people view their bodies is food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And they're not really just talking about food and being hungry. Really, they're talking about sexual desires at this point. And what they're saying is, hey, you know, I'm hungry and God gave me a stomach and he gave me hungry. I'm supposed to eat. So then I eat and then I feel better and that's it. So God gave me sexual desires and we have sexual organs. So then I do whatever I need to do with that to get pleasure. And that's good. That's why God gave it to us. That's what the church in Corinth is, or that's what the people in Corinth is saying. Well, that sounds familiar, isn't it? It sounds like our world. Well, I have these desires. God gave me these desires. They must be good. Therefore, I must fulfill them however it is that I want. You can summarize the world's view on sexuality to this right here. Whatever I feel, whatever I desire is good. And maybe even some will say it is holy. And to not fulfill it, to not eat the food for my stomach would be, is one of the worst sins you can commit. It's one of the worst things the world imagines, is to deny ourselves, is to repress. They'll re call it repression. They'll call it harmful. That, man, if you just, if you have sexual desires and you let it fester and you don't feed them, then that's the, the worst thing that you could imagine. That's the way that the world talks. But what this does, what this view does to the way we view our bodies is it actually puts our bodies and our sexual desires or other desires up as gods, as gods that need to be worshipped, as gods who demand constant sacrifice. So whatever the gods want, the gods get. And however they have to get it, they can. This is why pornography has such a hold over our culture, because it's the easiest way for everyone to get a fix whenever they want it at all times. Why? Because, well, we have this. We have to fulfill these things. What this also leads to is accepting every single sexual urge, whatever it may be, as good and holy. If our bodies are God's, then whatever they want is a mandate. It's not just I'm hungry, it's this must be fulfilled. I have to do whatever I want with this. Having some sexual desire, having a sexual orientation, that means it must be good. That God wants me to fulfill this however I choose. That's the root of the world's sexual ethic. Follow our heart, follow our sexual desires wherever it leads you. That's what they say. And as long as no one's getting hurt, that's the only guardrail the world wants to put up, right? As long as no one's hurt, as long as there's consent and people are just doing what they want, let everything go crazy. 
our world really right now is just continuing the sexual revolution of the 60s. It never really ended. It just continues to morph and go on and go on and go on. Why? Because our own desires, the desires of these guys, will never be satisfied. And it's led to a myriad of discussions today, uh, not just for those who are gay or who have um, sexual urges for those of the same gender or those in the LGBT plus community, but it, it, it's everything. The world says any, we have to affirm every single sexual desire, whatever you want to put there, whatever you want to add into the acronym, whatever community it is, we have to honor these things because they're good and they need to be met because our bodies are God's and we have to meet their demands. Food's for the stomach. It's all, it's all good. It's what we want. But look what Paul says, 13. It's not just God will destroy both one and the other. He says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. We need to stop. I don't want to spend forever chasing um, the LGBT issue, though Paul talks about it and kind of lays out fairly clearly what he thinks. Um, but he actually has something more offensive and just, just than saying, hey, that's wrong. That's not using your body correctly for what God made it. He actually is even more offensive and narrow than that. He doesn't just say, hey, homosexuality is wrong. He says, actually, all sexual immorality is wrong. Actually, not even just that. Anything you'd use your body for other than glorifying Jesus is wrong. All of it. Okay, that's pretty narrow. That's harder. And he prefers, this is why he always starts and uses the word sexual immorality as well. The, the word for sexual immorality, it's, it's a Greek word, pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from, and it's meant to just be a big catch-all. It's like a big bucket. That just If you looked up the definition, you could just put whatever you want under there, because that's why Paul uses it. Why? Because our, our desires, our world sexual desires, there will always be more things that get added into it. So Paul doesn't even bother listing out all of the sexual sins that are going on in the city of Corinth. That's the hub of this at the time. He just says, hey, all of that, all that's wrong. All that's violating your bodies. And our bodies weren't created to feed our, our sexual urges, whether they're same-sex or heterosexual, whatever they are, our bodies are created for Jesus, period. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. We weren't created to experience physical ecstasy, but to experience Jesus. That's why we were made. And Paul shifts the discussion here, actually, and he starts to talk about how actually what happens in our bodies is way deeper than our urges, because our bodies are designed for Jesus, and what that means is what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters to Jesus. And he goes into this discussion on members, or another, one of your translations may say limbs. Um, he's, he's continuing this discussion, this metaphor on the body, body parts, and he uses the example of prostitution. Because in the church in Corinth, that's their main problem. Prostitution's everywhere. And it's not just everywhere, it's, it's normal. It's an accepted practice. It's everybody does this. It's, you know, you, everyone is always just going to visit the prostitutes, okay? You you're, had a hard day at work, on your way home, instead of just swinging by the bar, you stop by a brothel as well because, I mean, it's just, just food. You know, you're hungry, food's for the stomach, stomach for food, no big deal. We all get it. Nothing matters. And you're saying, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's like these characters, if you watch enough um, rom-coms or romantic movies, there's always eventually somebody who will cheat in some way, and then they'll, when confronted, say, oh, it didn't mean anything, it didn't mean anything, which, I mean, we all laugh, you dummy, clearly it meant something. It always means something. That's what Paul's saying. No, 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 it's, this isn't nothing. 
This means something. And what he's saying, this kind of sexual immorality is like chopping off your limbs, taking them away from Jesus, and then giving them to someone else. So do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ? Shall I chop them off and make them members of prostitutes? Never. That that word never, it's the strongest uh, negative in the Greek you can have. It's absolutely not. By no means. Please, you you dummies. This is the worst thing I've ever heard of. He's using the strongest language that he can. He continues in 16, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit to him. Now, there's a lot of discussion kind of here on, well, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to become one body? And I think there's a number of things going on here. But part of it, I don't think he's just trying to teach us that, hey, there's something mystical that happens that creates this connection thing. I think maybe that, that's part of it. But the larger point of what Paul is trying to say is, hey, what you are doing is violating what your body was made for. Your body was made to be united and to be made one with Jesus, not to be made one with prostitutes. And that what you think is helping your bodies, what you guys would say, oh, this is good, this is good for us, it's even helping me spiritually because now I'm not distracted. You say, no, 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 you, this is not helping your spirituality, this is destroying it. That's why he says in 18, flee from sexual immorality, run away from it, avoid it, get as far away from it as you can. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person commits sin against his own body. So we, we sin sexually. It's not that we're doing something good for our bodies by, by meeting their desires. We're actually violating our bodies. So the world gets this backwards. When they say that repression is harmful, no, it's actually sinful expression that is harmful. Now, another way that we can get off track and a wrong way that we can view our bodies because that may not be as tempting for many of us as others. The wrong way we get off track and a way the church is more tempted to this is that instead of viewing our bodies as gods, we can swing too far the other way and we can view our bodies as the enemy. We can view our bodies as something that we just have to endure. And this can happen in a number of ways. Those who, who struggle with addiction, those who struggle with sexual urges, those who struggle with chronic pain and illness, we can come to view our bodies as something that we are fighting against. We can come to view our bodies as something, something other or something that's just a result of the fall, and I can't wait till we, we get to heaven and I'm done with my physical body anymore. But we have to resist this temptation to view our bodies as something different. Okay, you can't just cut it up and say there's the soul, there's the body, and that's it. The, the body doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just a Tupperware container I've got to be stuck in until I get something different. Okay, because that is actually, that's an ancient trap. That's an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. This is something, it's kind of in its embryonic stages right now, and Paul often throughout his letters is fighting against it and arguing against it, but it becomes much more prevalent later. And one of the big things that Gnosticism had is that, hey, the spiritual is good, but the physical world is all evil. Our physical bodies are awful. Our physical bodies are horrible. They're the enemy, and we're trying to escape. We're trying to transcend. We're trying to get out of this. And the Gnostic myth of the fall, their version of the fall in the Garden of Eden was that Adam and Eve were spiritual beings. But then when they sinned, they got trapped in physical bodies. 
And oh, how horrible that is. And that's what we're trying to do is escape that. If you saw there was a movie, a, a Noah movie with Russell Crowe that came out many years ago that probably many, not many of you saw it because it wasn't super great. It was probably weird and confusing. Well, it was weird and confusing because it was very Gnostic. It was all based around this Gnostic myth and a Gnostic view of this. And that's kind of the good celebration at the end is the angels escape their physical bodies and transcend into the spiritual. And what this view does is this says, you know, our bodies don't really matter. They're just gross and they're something we want to escape from. As believers, we can fall into this trap too, even when we talk about heaven. Okay, because we long to be with Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. Heaven's good. It's something we want to get to. But we forget that, hey, the story doesn't end when we go up to Jesus. It ends when Jesus comes back down. It ends when he remakes the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, guess what? There's a new creation. And we're not just going to be, that. we forget too, in the beginning, in Genesis, our bodies were created and God said, it is good. Okay, that's after he made Adam and Eve in some physical bodies. He said, hey, these are good things. These limbs and their limitations with just their five digits, and they can only run so fast, they can only jump so high, they're trapped in this one physical body. Hey, this is good. This isn't bad. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to get glorified bodies, but they're still bodies. They're not going to be ghosts that just float through walls and don't eat anything anymore. We'll have flesh. And when Jesus returns, we'll all be resurrected, and our bodies will be like His. Our bodies aren't God. They're also not the enemy. They're, they're, they're good. They're gifts from Him. Jesus Himself has a physical body. Jesus Himself, even in His resurrection, even in Him having a glorified body, you know what He still had on His body? He still had scars. He had holes in His hands and a hole in His side. And one day when we get to see Him face to face, we will see those scars. Let us touch them. Uh, our bodies are not the enemy, and ultimately our bodies are, are useful for worship. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Our physical bodies, for believers, right now this morning, is a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. It is not just a, a container that doesn't mean anything, that he's stuck in, that your body is a temple. Your body should matter to you because it matters to Jesus, because it matters to God. And God gave you your body. He gave us our bodies, even though we may have, you know, we may have some things we wish he would have done a little differently. Our bodies are still good. They matter. And Paul reminds us, verse 20, our bodies are not ours. Ultimately, glorify God in your body, but you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. So, I mean, it means we glorify God not just spiritually, we glorify God physically, that we worship Him. That, uh, the reason our body was created so that we can do that. So how can we do that? Well, we can use our physical bodies to glorify God by dancing, by singing, by, by using our tongues to proclaim the praises of God, by clapping, by taking the Lord's Supper. This is part of why we have practices like baptism and like the Lord's Supper because those are physical things. Okay, when we take the Lord's Supper, we physically take a cup and we drink and it goes down our, in our tongues and down our throats and we hold in our hands bread and we can physically feel it on our skin. That is a way that we glorify God in our bodies. And this shouldn't just be, oh, this isn't just pertinent for how we view sexuality, but for how we view 
all of life. So we need to remember that our physical bodies actually matter. And we are bought with a price. They are not our own. Just be, again, just because we have some desire or just because we want to do something, we have to remember this isn't mine, this is just God's. He, he's bought it. He's renting it out to me. He's letting me borrow it. And so what should we do? We should glorify Him in it, however we can. And this is something that, that I think many of us can struggle with, but we, have to, we, we can't fall too far on either ends of these spectrums. We can't join with the world and over-worship our bodies, nor should we treat or talk about our bodies as if they are just the enemy. Yes, they are fallen. Yes, they are broken. Yes, they are marred by sin. And one day all of those things will pass away, praise God. But our bodies will still remain as they are glorified. And so what a gift it is today, even in this incomplete, non-glorified body, that is the very dwelling place of God. And we get to, what a gift it is to worship Him with our bodies. Our last point is um, point number three. It's really part of our application, but I'm taking it directly, um, primarily from verse 11, but really 9 through 11. So we need to remember that our bodies have been washed, sanctified, and justified by Jesus. Remember that our body, remember that your body has been washed, sanctified, and justified by Jesus. This is true of our corporate body, and this is true of our physical bodies. But look back at 9 and 10 for a reminder of what our bodies have been cleaned from. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The sexually immoral, the idolaters, those who, not just those who are bowing down to things, those who are worshiping whatever they think will bring them happiness. Adulterers, not those who are having affairs, but Jesus also says those who are viewing or even looking at someone else with lust. Those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, none of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the best part. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Say, this is who you used to be. But now you have been washed. You have been sanctified. And you are justified. We can be, every single person in this room, before Jesus needed washing. All of us were trapped in our sin. We can be, and there are moments we can be filled sometimes with the shame of who we used to be. Or we can be filled with the shame of the things that we still are, even though we're trying to follow Jesus, but yet we fall short time and time again. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, there is hope. Because of what Jesus, He came and He died on the cross for our sins. And He died on the cross so that there is hope for new life, so that we can be with Him one day forever. But he also died to change who we are right now, today. That through Jesus and the gospel, we have been born again. Through faith in him, through confessing our sins, we are a new people. We are not idolaters. We aren't greedy. We aren't sexually immoral anymore. Now we are worshipers of Jesus. And the best description of this is the washing. It's the way that we are washed, and it's a reference to a few things. One, it's a reference to the way that the blood of Jesus has literally washed our sins away, and now we are white as snow. How He took his sins, our sins upon Himself, and He shed His blood on the cross 
for us. He did this so His blood would be as a sacrifice, but also so that blood would transform us. We aren't just washed clean, but we have been made clean down to our bones. All of our sins have been washed away for those who put their faith in Jesus. It's also a reference to, to baptism because baptism is an act of washing. We don't put soap in the tank. Okay? We don't need soap because we have the blood of Jesus. And that's going under is symbolic and reminds us that we have all been buried, not just buried in a race to life, but we have been washed and made clean. That we have new life in Jesus. So here's part of an application. Suggestion to you, a way to, to reflect on this or to remember this. is Because I think we all, it, it does us good to look back and remember that Jesus has washed us clean. So maybe a way you can do that is, you know, the next time that you wash, or you're taking a shower, you're taking a bath, the next time that you're just washing your hands, next time you're washing the dishes, why don't you just stop and spend part of that time and remind yourself that Jesus washed you clean? Just like whatever it is you're cleaning in the moment. That your sins have been forgiven. That, that you, such were some of you. You used to be something else, but now you are washed clean through faith in Jesus. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear this and remember this. Think even of the Trinity as you do this. I want you to hear this morning. Hear God the Father declare over you. God the Father, the judge and the ruler, the authority over the cosmos, who sits on the throne. Hear Him declare from the throne room of heaven that you are made righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That you are not your past sins. You are not your past mistakes. You are a son and a daughter because of what Jesus has done. And God the Father, the ultimate judge, declares you justified. Hear Jesus Christ the Lord, the Son of God. Hear Him grab your chin and look in His eyes. Would you to feel the holes in His hands and look at the scars on His back. See His misshapen scalp on His head from the crown of thorns. And hear Him say, my child, I did this for you. I, have, I died for you. I shed my blood so that you could be washed clean. Hear the comforter of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the voice of the Spirit who dwells inside your physical body, that temple, who swims in your blood, who inhabits your pumping heart, the Holy Spirit who lives in your bones. Hear Him say and whisper to you in your soul that you have been washed clean. Every nook and cranny of your body has been washed by the blood of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, if you feel too dirty to come, if you're, you're unsure or if you are, are in this list of those who don't inherit the kingdom of God and you hear that and it scares you and you think, well, there is no hope for me. The baptism tank is open. You are not too far gone. There is no stain on your soul. There is no act you could commit it. There is no shame that you carry that the blood of Jesus could not wash away. At the cross and the feet of Jesus, all of our sins can and have been taken away, and you can be cleaner than you ever have been. God the Father loves you. Jesus died for you, and the Holy Spirit is waiting for you. So if it, that's you, come, beloved, and be washed clean by the blood of the Son of Man. I invite you to talk to me, talk to an elder. Supportedly, talk to Jesus. Salvation is here.
And those of you who are saved, remember, you too have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We're going to sing this morning. We're going to close um, with a song of just, are, are you washed in the blood? And so I just, it fits. And so that's what I want you to, as we sing that, uh, don't just sing it, don't just stand there passively, but however it is for you, man, worship and glorify God in your physical body or pause and just reflect and remember that you have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Vice to stand as we continue to, to worship. I hope that you're washed in the blood of the Lamb. And those who are washed clean, hear this from the Lord in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Abound in hope this week, church family. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.